had a series of inflation shocks that have just come one after the other. Our real goal as central bankers and monetary policy makers is to try and ensure we have price stability. We're trying to provide an anchor for expectations in the economy and expectations in financial markets. The coronavirus pandemic has tanked the global economy with unprecedented speed. The steepness of the decline here is unprecedented. This is a crisis that is unprecedented. It is unprecedented and we just don't know. This is Beyond Unprecedented, the post-pandemic economy, a limited series podcast from Columbia Law School and the Ira M. Milstein Center for Global Markets and Corporate Ownership. I'm Eric Talley, Salzbacher Professor at Columbia Law School and co-director of the Milstein Center. And I'm Tally Gillis, Associate Professor of Law and Milton Handler Fellow at Columbia Law School. Today, we'll dig into a phenomenon we've all been feeling over the past few months, inflation. It's become a huge issue and one that most people under 40 have never really had to experience, particularly in the US and Western Europe. What's happening? What are the factors that drive inflation and how can regulators and others act to curb the tide of rising prices? This inflationary episode that we're in right now is concerning, but I have to tell you, it makes me feel young again because uh, I still remember the high inflation periods of the late 1970s and early 1980s and, you know, how kind of crazy it was at the time. I'm guessing you are not in my camp, are you? No, I grew up in Israel. And so Israel had one of these extreme episodes of hyperinflation in the 1980s. Um, Like in 1984, for example, inflation rates were 445%. So really, really high. This was one year before I was born and then a few years before I was financially aware. So the direct lasting impact in, in how to manage my finances probably didn't have the same impact as you, Eric. But I do think there's kind of been this lasting impact on society that, that I did experience. So the pegging of consumer contract prices like rent to the US dollar in Israel is something that kind of originated then, but it's something you see even today. This is 40 years later. I also think hyperinflation in Israel caused a lot of financial misconduct. There were all these incidents of banks artificially inflating their stock. Um, So it was really kind of this turning point in terms of awareness of misconduct for a pretty young country at the time, Israel. There are a few ways in which indirectly hyperinflation really has had a lasting impact in Israel and my life too. All right. Well, even if you didn't get to experience hyperinflations on the price of Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin t-shirts, It's still an issue now, and today we are thrilled to be joined by Hugh Pill. Hugh's the chief economist and executive director of the Monetary Analysis and Research Group at the Bank of England. Previously, he was chief European economist at Goldman Sachs. Hugh has also had multiple stints on the faculty of Harvard Business School. And I know this is the program on inflation and not to inflate his credentials even more, But perhaps Hugh's most impressive skill is that he had the temperance to put up with an untidy, irreverent Yankee, myself, in a very, very small graduate student apartment during the 1990s. So welcome, Hugh, to the show. Thank you, uh, Eric, and thank you, Talia, for inviting me. It's a very pleasure to be here. I'm glad to have you here. Let me have you help us set the stage a little bit here. So over the past couple of years, uh, there have been several economic shocks that have moved inflation substantially higher than you know what we got used to in the early 2000s, the zero to 3% rates of inflation. And before we get to sort of what these recent episodes have been, let's, let's like maybe set some benchmarks about what inflation 
should be, at least according to contemporary central bankers and monetary economists such as yourself. The central banks in many countries, including the Bank of England, the US Fed, and, and so forth, have tended to set an inflation target of around 2% as a goal. But was that always the case? How did we get to this 2% inflation sort of rule of thumb? And why is it thought to be important? Our real goal as central bankers and monetary policymakers is to try and ensure we have price stability. And of course, the question, what do we mean by price stability? Well, Alan Greenspan, former chairman of the Federal Reserve, he famously um, described price stability as a situation where developments in inflation don't affect the decisions that households and firms are making about investment, about spending, about where they choose to send their kids to college, whether they choose to buy a house. And the thinking behind that is, if you can ignore those things, you can focus on the decisions that are really important to you, right? How you trade off investing in a factory today via putting your cash in the bank. If everything's being distorted by inflation, then you might make wrong decisions about that. You might make misinformed decisions about those types of things. And that will interfere with the productivity growth, with the innovation, with the dynamism in the economy. Now, of course, then it comes down to the question, if you want price stability, why focus on one specific number, 2%? Well, there's a number of reasons for that. First of all, we're just trying to be transparent. We're trying to explain what we're doing in a measurable way. And what that helps us be is also accountable. So it's very important for us to be clear about what we're trying to achieve. And then if we don't achieve it, people can complain and hold us to account. And you know, in the end, they can get us to change course if necessary. We're trying to provide an anchor for expectations in the economy and expectations in financial markets. So, you know, most financial instruments will be priced at least partly depending on what the outlook for inflation is. Um, and if we can anchor inflation credibly at 2%, then that gives them something to anchor on and, and, and manage uh, developments and price assets in the financial sector more effectively. There's nothing really magic about 2%. Would it make a massive difference if it was 2.5% or 3% or 1.5%? I think probably the answer to that is no. You want to put grease into the wheels of the market by having a little bit of inflation that allows all prices to change. For much of the 2000s until literally last year, we were you know, in this multi-decade moment, really, of historically low inflation. By the summer of 2022, the worm had turned pretty dramatically, right? Inflation in the US was as high as 9.1%, depending on how you measure it. There are a lot of factors that were associated with it. You know, some maybe short-term factors such as supply chain crunches having to do with the COVID-19 pandemic, maybe other things having to do with Russia's invasion of U Ukraine. But there are other forces at play too, right? More permanent uh, forces that cause, you know, prices to, to rise faster than costs are increasing. So where do we sit now from your perspective on how much of these inflationary pressures are transitory versus much more durable in their nature? We are very focused, I think, in the central banking community, in the monetary policy community, on the persistent component of inflation. The reason for that, as a starting point, is that that chain, that transmission mechanism of what we do by setting rates, how long it takes that to feed through into having an influence on inflation, working through the banking sector, 
than having Talia go to the bank, get her mortgage, buy her house, and change her spending decision. That chain of transmission, it comes with quite long lags. So when we move bank rate, or the Fed moves the Fed funds rate, that probably has its biggest effect on inflation in the UK or US, respectively, in about 18 months' time. If some disturbance hits the economy today, and it feeds through to inflation tomorrow, if we changed interest rates today, as soon as we saw that disturbance, we'd be having influence inflation in 18 months' time much too late to offset the sort of impact effect. So that has two implications. One is there will be some volatility in inflation around this 2% target, which is just unavoidable, and we kind of have to suck it up. But also, when we're trying to set our policy rates, we have to make forecasts, basically, to ensure that and we begin to have that impact on inflation at that 12-month to 18-month horizon, that is, we have the right impact at that point. So key question for us then is, well, what's causing that persistence? Because inflation has been you know, higher than we expected. It's been higher than we expected for longer, and it's undesirably long time. So inflation started to go up about 18 months ago. We don't have that excuse now so easily that you know, we just couldn't get, even if we'd acted immediately, we couldn't get it to effect because of these lags. The technology available for monetary policymakers was too slow moving. One story is there's been a set of shocks. If you read Lemony Snicket, it's, you know, it's this series of unfortunate events that have just all gone in the same direction, right? And so how unlucky can you be? The pandemic simultaneously both disturbed supply in the economy. We know all those stories about ships being stuck in Shanghai, not being able to bring things to Long Beach. And so therefore there were fewer iPhones just at the time when the government was giving those stimmy checks to American households. So American households were flush with cash. They all wanted to buy the new Xbox in order to play at home because they couldn't go to work or go to the restaurant or go to the bar. That led to more demand, not enough supply, prices go up, that's inflationary. But just as that story was beginning to turn over, pandemic was receding, we then saw the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The Russian government turned off the tap on natural gas supplies from Siberia and from Russia into Western Europe. And what's the consequence of that is, well, wholesale European gas prices, from when I started working at the bank in the autumn of 2021, to their peak in August last year, they rose about 12 times. I mean, that's more than a thousand percent. And even though gas or energy or uh, fuel and utility bills is a relatively small proportion of spending in the UK, say it's about five or six percent, you know, you just do the arithmetic, something goes up a thousand percent, and you multiply it by a weight of 5%, you're still getting a massive contribution to inflation of five or six percentage points. And that's moving us from our 2% target close to double digits, and that's exactly what happened. But then over the last few months, gas prices have come off, right? So, you know, that's working in our favor. But what's happened then? You know, we've seen rises in food prices. Now, part of that was avian flu, part of that was we saw crop failures in Southern Europe and North Africa, so all the avocados became super expensive, we didn't have any eggs, all that type of stuff we've had a series of inflationary shocks that have just come one after the other. Each of those shocks was in itself transitory, but they just were timed in a way that inflation never dissipated. Now, that's a pretty convenient story for a central banker to tell, and that is a story we tell, but maybe it's not the whole truth, right? And so, you know, there are two parts to that. One part might be, could we have anticipated some of these shocks? And I think there is good economic research, for example, looking at supply chains, that if we had understood supply chains better than we did, we could have probably understood that this was going to be a more difficult process than we anticipated. The crucial thing is, is that the behavior 
our price setters, wage setters in the UK economy, in the US economy, will change. When your energy bill you get every month at your house goes up four or five times, that's eating into your income. What's the natural thing to do? Well, the natural thing to do is say, I need to be paid more. If you're a household, work at a household, what's the natural thing to do if you're a restaurant? The natural thing to do is say, I need to raise the prices of you know, my meals in order to compensate the fact my gas bill is now higher. But then, of course, that process is ultimately self-defeating. In the end, the UK, which is a big net importer of natural gas, is facing a situation that the price of what you're buying from the rest of the world has gone up a lot relative to the price of what you're selling to the rest of the world, which is mainly services in the case of the UK. And so that means you don't need to be much of an economist to realize if what you're buying has gone up a lot relative to what you're selling, you're going to be worse off. So somehow in the UK, someone needs to accept that they're worse off and stop trying to maintain their real spending power by bidding up prices, whether higher wages or passing the energy costs through onto customers, etc. And what we're facing now is that that reluctance to accept that, yes, we're all worse off and we all have to take our share to try and pass that cost onto one of our compatriots and saying we'll be all right, but they will have to take our share too. That pass the parcel game that's going on here. That game is one that is just generating inflation. And that part of inflation can persist. How much bargaining power, how much pricing power exists for different actors in the value chain on the corporate side or in the labor market? And at the moment, the relatively low level of unemployment, the strength of corporate pricing power and so forth, in the UK and the US, I think, they're all running a little bit too strong. And so that's why interest rates have gone up. That's trying to cool demand in the economy down, and that's ultimately trying to ensure that that process, if you like, of pass the parcel is consistent with the 2% you mentioned earlier. Since March 2022, the Fed has raised rates from near zero to a target range between 475 and 5%. Similarly, the Bank of England has increased the key rate from 0.1% to 4.25% since December 2021. What are the limits and the potential hazards of using this tool aggressively? What do you look at to know when interest rates have hit the right level, particularly in light of what you said about the delayed impact of increasing rates? I think you're right to point out that a lot of what I've said is in the face of high inflation, we need to tighten policy and that's the process we've been in. So we need to make sure policy is tight enough to weigh enough on demand that that whole process of bargaining, that level of demand in the economy, results in inflation that's a target. But, of course, if you need to do enough, the danger always exists that you do too much. And if you do too much, what happens? When you weaken demand excessively, you might cause a recession. Most things in life are about trying to find that balance, not too much, not too little, but just right. This is the kind of Goldilocks uh, story. We need to be looking forward exactly to calibrate our policy decisions to have the right impact when those lags in transmission unwind. But as I think Yogi Berra, who probably someone Eric knows better than me, but I believe is sort of a baseball uh, philosopher combination. Um, but I think he famously said something like, you know, it's hard to make forecasts, especially about the future. And I think that really gets down to a lot of what practically on a day-to-day -day basis we are trying to do. That is basically the process we go through here at the Bank of England every six weeks when we have these monetary policy committee meetings. And in making those forecasts, we're looking at all the available information we have. So there's lots of economic data, 
Um, so, you know, we look at GDP, we look at measures of inflation itself, we look at wage developments, we look at different components of all those things, we look at consumption, investment, exports, imports, exchange rate, asset prices. Increasingly, we also try and look at more exotic data and use more exotic techniques like AI techniques and so forth, because there is a lot of information out there um, that probably isn't being captured uh, as effectively as we may like. You know, it's very much on our agenda to move in that direction. Would it be transformative to monetary policy? I'm not sure. I think monetary policy is a pretty old-fashioned kind of game. It's a pretty slow-moving kind of game. We shouldn't be at the bleeding, cutting edge of technology just for the sake of it. We, we are famously a conservative bunch in the central banking world. But I think you know, we do need to move in the direction of using new data techniques and new data sources. And this is definitely what we're seeking to do. Talking about Yogi Berra, one of his uh, famous quips was uh, about inflation. He was said to say, uh, a nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. So <laughs> I want to kind of push you a little bit more on like which direction, how much, how far is too much, how fast is too fast or too slow. We had been lulled into this kind of expectation that inflation was almost permanently 2% or even close to zero. And it moved incredibly quickly and incredibly violently, as did interest rates um, because of concern about the inflationary pressures. And, and that's placed a lot of strain on the banking industry on both sides of the Atlantic. So a poster child in the U.S. is the now defunct Silicon Valley Bank. And they threw a bunch of their, their assets, right, while they were waiting for people to take deposits into government bonds and agency-backed bonds. Default risk is super low, but if there's a sudden increase in interest rates, the value of these things can fall precipitously. And that's effectively what happened. And as some of their clients, you know, because VC industry was also slowing down, started to pull money out, they had to start taking write downs on their assets. And that essentially caused a big collective freakout. Signature Bank about the same time failed. A third, First Republic, had to be bailed out by a group of largely U.S.-based banks. Uh, it, it soon spread overseas and Swiss regulators, you know, hammered out a kind of a shotgun a marriage acquisition of uh, Credit Suisse into another big Swiss bank, UBS. I guess the concern is that these examples aren't completely aberrational. I kind of feel for the tension of a central banker here, right? Trying to say we've got to take aggressive moves to slow down the economy, but then you know a, a quick change in interest rates can cause some of these uh, financial institutions to kind of end up upside down. And so when you're trying to make your own decisions on the if and how fast questions on rate changes. Uh, how do you think about like the general fragility in the financial system, uh, you know, sort of writ large and going forward? I think the Fed waited to move rates a bit longer than we did at the Bank of England, but then moved them faster. And there were those who say we should have gone quicker here in the UK, more similarly to the Fed, we should have moved earlier. So there will always be a debate, I think, about too far, too fast, too slow, too little. Central banks are responsible for monetary policy. That's kind of my main job here at the Bank of England. But we're also responsible for supervising banks in large many respects, and also responsible for financial stability. And, and all these things are naturally complementary to each other. When we move interest rates, I mean, a key thing then is the financial system has to work. If the financial system is in panic, if the financial system is in, is in stress, that transmission of policy will be disrupted and then we will not be able to achieve our monetary policy goals, uh, let alone our financial stability goals. The UK has not been immune to the similar events. So last autumn, um, maybe triggered by 
changes of government in the UK and different fiscal choices in the UK, fiscal policy, tax and spending policies by the government. We also had our sort of financial aberration and you know that led to a lot of pain and that was actually in the non-bank sector. So lots of different jurisdictions have faced these problems. And I think you're right, they all fundamentally reflect the fact that we've been in a world where the expectation was interest rates were low and would stay low because we had conquered the inflation problem. So, you know, what are we doing? Well, I think central bankers from the monetary policy side, we like to be predictable. We like to move gradually. We don't want to shock people, right? So to some extent, the reason why, you know, we didn't just move interest rates from 0.1% to above 4% in one leap is that we were trying to manage some of these risks. We were trying to prepare the ground. We were trying to signal to people that this is going to be a process we have to raise interest rates because inflation is there. We need to tighten policy, but we're going to do it in a gradual, persistent and kind of resolute way. So that's been the sort of language that I have emphasized. Um, it's interesting that people now are more on that side. There was a long time where they were saying, you're being too slow, right? Inflation has gone up to double digits in the UK. You need to be raising rates faster. And I think recent events have a bit moderated that. But one crucial thing is that what we're going through in, in what you described is really the first test of the new kind of post-global financial crisis regime. And that's a regime which says we use regulatory measures and sort of so-called macroprudential measures to try and maintain stability in the financial system. And what we are doing on the monetary policy side is relying on the fact that our colleagues in the other side of the bank are doing their job, looking at the banks, stress testing the banks, so forcing the banks to go through scenarios, what would happen if interest rates go up? What would happen if bond prices fall? We do have a certain degree of confidence that within the banking system, the core financial system, that there is a robustness and resilience there. But what we're not doing is somehow saying, oh my God, there's such a problem in the financial sector that we need to be distracted from our objective of price stability, getting inflation back to 2%. And, and I think that's the real test of the system. Silicon Valley Bank famously was uh, pulled out from the stress testing uh, uh, rubric uh, within the U.S. And even if they stayed in, I think the basic stress test that the Fed was using for uh, 2022 didn't plug in an inflationary scenario. It was it was other sorts of scenarios. I'm I'm, I'm guessing that we're going to have certainly in the U.S. and maybe in the U.K. as well, more of a fulsome kind of uh, reassessment of all the different scenarios that are kind of necessary for stress testing? So I think that's right. In the UK, we, we have really submitted pretty much all banks to what in the jargon is, you know, a test of interest rate risk in the banking book. So that has been something that, you know, not just the banks that were international banks that are subject to international sets of regulation, which requires that, but all banks had to do that. But, you know, to your point, I mean, certainly there's a whole set of issues here in the UK. It's as much focused on the non-bank financial sector, the hedge fund world, the pension fund world, the money market world, etc. Um, I mean, it, it, to try and think about well, what are the plausible scenarios. So a stress test that looked very extreme, a sort of 10 sigma, 20 sigma event of rates going up 400 basis points uh, in a year. I mean, suddenly that's reality. So what does stress mean in a world where you've seen that happen? We hope that we've broken the back of the inflation process, we're always going to be hit by some shocks. And so our nimbleness and sort of resilience to those types of shocks is really the core thing. And that applies on the monetary policy side and applies on the financial stability side.
Let's talk about one aspect of the relationship between high inflation and consumer behavior, buy now, pay later products. These are short-term loans that allow consumers to pay for purchases in installments with no interest, low if any fees, and fast credit approvals. And during the pandemic, buy now, pay later grew in popularity, especially among Gen Z, as we would say borrowers. And as costs of living have increased, many consumers have turned to buy now, pay later to manage their everyday expenses from groceries to gas. But with rising inflation, we've also seen increased delinquency on buy now, pay later loans. So according to the Fed, 18% of consumers between ages of 18 and 29 fell behind on their buy now, pay later payments into 2021. Um, And so you started our discussion by talking about how the goal of price stability is that inflation itself does not affect consumer decisions. But perhaps the problem here, to some extent, is that inflation is not impacting consumer spending enough and credit is being used to kind of bridge the gap. So what's your take on the dynamic between inflationary pressure and the rise in buy now, pay later and the reliance of consumers uh, on credit more generally? Fundamentally, what's going to drive prices up? in aggregate, in individual uh, uh, parts of the economy, it's when demand grows strongly relative to the availability of the goods people want to buy. So I certainly agree with you that the availability of easy credit and these buy now, pay later type schemes is one aspect of that. But you know there are lots of other aspects of easy credit that are out there. Availability of easy credit may be on terms that are not being as closely influenced by regulators and or by the monetary policy decisions of the central bank. Some of these buy now, pay later are using innovative credit scoring schemes and that type of thing. We definitely want to embrace innovation because innovation is one of the things that will drive better allocation of resources, that productivity, dynamism and and better living standards. But we want that innovation to take place within the environment that doesn't generate excessive risk. In the lead up to the global financial crisis, Um, We saw quite a lot of financial innovation. Some of it was very positive, but some of it was misdirected. And it led to an overextension of credit, which then transmitted to the system and really had a big cost on the global economy and the US economy. Um, And what I think we need to make sure is, is that when we have these innovations on the financial sector side, that we ensure that that safety is there, that good regulation is there, that allows the type of innovation to take place in a productive way. And I think that probably is the right way to set ourselves up uh, at the present. Okay, Hugh, I want to ask you one last aphorism from our baseball prophet poet, Yogi Berra, who once said, you can observe a lot just by watching. So uh, in the coming months, what are you going to be watching to more assess what the inflationary outlook is going to be like in the next 12 to 18 months? And, And what sort of measures will you be looking at to try to figure out when the Bank of England has done enough to cool down the inflationary pressures sufficiently? So for, for me, the absolute key thing is to keep this focus on the persistent sort of underlying component of inflation. So in the UK context, and this is true to some extent in the US too, we've seen natural gas prices rise 11, 12 times. We've seen them then fall, you know, back not far off where they started. That's going to create a lot of movement in headline inflation. We may actually see headline inflation go below our 2% target uh, over the next uh, couple of years. But the kind of key thing is, is that there's not much we can do about that, Um, precisely because this is all being driven by things that have already happened. We're very focused on this process of what's that part of inflation that's going to persist beyond that 18-month, two-year horizon. It is about how much 
we see wage growth in the UK economy uh, push to try and reclaim what's been lost in terms of real spending power on the part of households. And then by the same token, how much there's pressure on the corporate side to try and push up profit margins. That might seem like a simple thing to measure, but you know, it turns out there are lots of different measures and, and, and lots of different idiosyncrasies about how we do that. On the labor market side, that's about the level of unemployment, how tight is the labor market. On the corporate side, it's about the level of demand, it's about the stresses in value change and so forth. Um, one indicator that in the UK we think is quite telling is services price inflation because that's something which is kind of being driven more by developments in the UK. We're focused on what's going on domestically and domestic core inflation is, is really key there. But what's key in all of that is that we can't just look at one or two individual indicators and say this tells us everything. We want to convince people, yes, we're going to get back to 2%. We're going to look at everything. I've highlighted a couple of things we think are important, but they're important insofar as they inform our story about whether inflation is going to be more persistent or not. So it's, it's always going to be, know what you're trying to do, know what data is most important for that in the current circumstances, but be flexible that as the story changes, we may need to look at a broader or different set of things. Our guest today was Hugh Pill, Chief Economist and Executive Director for Monetary Analysis and Research at the Bank of England. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Beyond Unprecedented is brought to you by Columbia Law School and the Ira M. Milstein Center for Global Markets and Corporate Ownership. This podcast is produced by the Office of Communications, Marketing, and Public Affairs at Columbia Law School. Our executive producer is Michael Petullo. Julie Godso, Carrie Midland, and Martha Moore, producers. Editing and engineering by Jake Rosati. Special thanks to Erica Mitnick-Klein and Molly Calkins at the Milstein Center, with research assistance from Alice Legrand. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. If you're interested in learning more about law, the economy, and society, visit us at law.columbia.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.